Thank you very much, Ines, and thank you to IMC for having invited me and for having organized uh, this and other events. What I want to do this afternoon is to explore uh, the theme of Buddha nature, and then I've added to that slash Mara nature, which follows from... um, what I was speaking about here, I think, was it Wednesday night or Thursday night? Just for my help, who was here on Wednesday night? Oh, okay, so a minority. So for those of you who were here, I may say some things that I already said then, but the, the thrust of this presentation will be rather different. But I'd like to begin, um, and I'd like to have periods through the time we have together, Um, with uh, silent meditation, just to settle down, uh, to be in this place, uh, to put aside whatever uh, ideas or thoughts or worries that we might have brought into this space, and also to put aside whatever plans or thoughts we might have for what we'll be doing next, so that we can settle here and our reflection and our study will not just be as in a kind of seminar, but hopefully will be more integrated, will allow us to listen and to reflect and to discuss uh, from maybe a slightly deeper place. After all, what we're going to be speaking about is not uh, so much theoretical as really um, exploring metaphors by which we can live our lives. And that, I think, is very central to uh, the kind of practice that uh, IMC and other such centers would encourage. So let's, is there anyone here, by the way, who's unfamiliar with sitting meditation practice? Or are are you all more or less comfortable with that? I'm not saying that you're very necessarily particularly good at it. Okay, so I won't give any detailed instruction, just to... um, allow ourselves to sit still comfortably with our backs as upright as possible to allow the breath to flow freely and then when we feel grounded in our posture to let our attention come to rest on the natural bodily rhythm of the breath neither controlling it or inhibiting it just allowing it to be as it is and on that foundation to, in a way, be with our whole experience, our embodied experience, our emotional, our mental experience, our sense of the world as it impacts on our ears, um, on our skin, through our eyes, nose, mouth, and likewise to be with that in an open, non-judgmental, attentive manner. So we'll sit for about half an hour. And I'll ring a bell to begin and a bell to end. So let me talk about Buddha nature and Mara nature. Buddha nature is certainly a term you've no doubt heard a million times. The other term is one that I've coined in the process of writing this book. So don't take it as somehow some classical Buddhist idea. It's not. It's a It's a suggestion that it might be a helpful way to look at things. So Buddha nature, Mara nature, clearly refers us to two two figures that appear in the early Buddhist canon, the Buddha, obviously, and the figure of Mara. And the other night I spoke a lot about that. I'm going to allude to that throughout the day, throughout the afternoon. But briefly speaking, Buddha is that capacity we have to wake up, that capacity we have to, uh, to understand things, that capacity we have to see clearly, the capacity we have to be free. And Mara is a way of talking about everything within us that somehow resists that process. So rather than moving towards waking up. Mara tends to be that which keeps us asleep, which keeps us somehow closed down. Rather than seeing clearly, 
Mara is that which in us, within us that tends to see things in a distorted, uh, uh, deluded manner. Instead of leading us into uh, freedom, Mara is that which tends to keep us trapped and bound and stuck. And both of these dimensions, because I think really we are talking of dimensions of what human life is capable of being. We have a capacity as human beings to reach extraordinary degrees of uh, creative understanding, of love, of compassion, but we also, as human beings, seem to have an equally embedded capacity to be self-centered, to be selfish, to be destructive, to be hateful, and so on. So what we're going to be looking at is this, uh, these tensions within us that, through practice, what we call practice in Buddhism, can be both understood, but more than being understood, can also be realized. And Buddha is... I'm not speaking of Buddha here really in terms of the historical Gautama Siddhartha who lived in India two and a half thousand years ago. I'm talking of Buddha as a way of of referring to what it was that he discovered. And what he discovered was not something that was an insight unique to him and his person, but was something that he felt was convinced and in fact historically in a way demonstrated to others that this awakening, this Buddha-ness is something that all beings are capable of. All of us have that potential and therein lies the origins of the concept of Buddha nature. But bear in mind that Buddha nature is not a term that appears in the early discourses of uh, the Pali Canon. But the corollary of this is that although we may have that capacity to wake up, we also have a capacity not to wake up, a capacity to remain stuck where we are, a capacity to live um, unfulfilled, um, constricted, um, obsessive and alienated lives. Now this uh, polarity, I feel we witness um, in, not only in Buddhism, but we also find it in other traditions. And not only is it exclusively about spiritual practice and what inhibits spiritual practice, but it's also very much, I think, about what characterizes our life from day to day. And so that's something I'll go back to. But let me, let me start with um, a citation from uh, William Blake, who's not, in any sense, a, a Buddhist. Uh, he knew nothing whatsoever about Buddhism and made no reference whatsoever to it. But he wrote a book in 1789 called The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. And a very famous passage from that reads as follows. If the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is, infinite. For man has closed himself up till he sees all things through narrow chinks of his cavern. Now here we find um, exactly the kind of metaphor that describes what I've just sketched as Buddha nature and as Mara nature. If the doors of perception were cleansed, and again this morning we talked of, of the practice as very much a practice of, of perception, of learning to perceive and notice those elements of our experience that are conducive to letting go, to freedom, such as impermanence, unreliability, selflessness. And that is a way 
we might think of as a cleansing of the doors of perception. And we use that language in Buddhism. In fact, if we think of the of the word the Tibetans used to translate the term Buddha, which literally means the awakened one, in Tibetan it becomes Sangye. Sang means cleansed, purified. Gye means um, expanded, uh, unfolded, blossomed, gyewa. And remember also it can be used as a verb, you can Buddha in Tibetan. I think you can do the same in Sanskrit. In other words, Sangyewa becomes Sangyawa, which means to somehow purify and open up. And that, I think, captures very well what I would understand by Buddha nature. That capacity to somehow free ourselves of distortion, of confusion, of attachment, and in doing so, that somehow releases the grip, the bind that we find ourselves in, and allows our life to unflow. And in many ways, I think Mara, the devil, is that which prevents our life from unfolding and from flowing, in a way that it could, were we only able to find the key to that kind of freedom. One of the figures that is used in the early canon to to represent Mara is the figure of the ancient Vedic god of the drought. And this god is called Namuchi, And sometimes in the Pali text it will say, and then Namuchi came to the Buddha. Now Namuchi, um, who I suspect we've probably not heard of, Namuchi um, literally means the one who withholds the waters. So in ancient India, even in India of our present day, the life of the society, of the people, depended entirely upon the yearly monsoon rains. No rains, no harvest. No harvest, no survival. Death. And Namuchi is that figure imagined in the Indian religious imagination as a kind of demonic force that prevents the monsoon from breaking. It then takes the figure of Indra, who's the king of the gods in uh, the Indian pantheon, to strike Namuchi with his vajra, his scepter, and that causes Namuchi to release his grip, and the rains then pour forth. And life is then enabled plants are able to grow, and so forth. So, Namuchi, or Mara as Namuchi, is a way of restraining or holding back our capacity to live fully. And Buddha, this purified, expanded way of being, is what is the uh, consequence of Mara's grip being released. So Mara is very much a kind of grasping, whether we call that ego grasping or attachment to things or attachment to ideas, anything that encloses us within a limit, within a boundary that we then cling on to for dear life. Our cherished opinions, um, uh, our possessions, Uh, whatever it is that we are particularly identified with, this is very much a function of Mara. So if the doors of perception were cleansed, says Blake, everything would appear to man as it is infinite. In other words, as we let go of these habitual forms of perception, 
that tie us down, that, that, that enclose us, it's not just that we feel some kind of inner release, a kind of relief perhaps, but also it transfigures the kind of world we feel ourselves to be part of, to inhabit. I think this is always an important point to bear in mind. A lot of Buddhist teaching, particularly when meditation is made to be a very central part of one's practice, tends to focus primarily on the internal subjective experience. In other words, it sounds a bit like a kind of psycho-spiritual technology about tinkering with the different components of our minds. And that's very helpful. And I think it's one of the great strengths of the Buddhist tradition is that it has such a, a lucid and a pragmatic way of working with the stuff of our inner experience, the mind, as we call it. But by focusing so much on that inner process, we tend sometimes to forget how the way we perceive things, the way we are attached to things, also determines how the world appears to us as well. That the two are not really separate at all. Take, for example, um, a state of, uh, of hatred. If we find ourselves caught up in, in hate, it's not just that we feel a certain uh, violent constriction within ourselves, a kind of a, uh, a very unpleasant sense of, of antipathy and, and irritation and dislike and perhaps even disgust, but also that inner state of mind defines and causes the other person, the world, to appear in another light. A person consumed with hatred will see very often the world as a potential source of threat. The world will appear somehow darkened and threatening and potentially aggressive. And the person we think of as hateful um, appears to us in such a way that every aspect of them is somehow um, unacceptable, somehow disgusting in a way. You know, anything from the... the you, just, you, you see the person that you really don't like, that you really hate, and everything about them is somehow imbued with that quality of dislike. You know, the, to some to silly things like you know, the cut of their suit the way they uh, smile. Um, in, in America, I know today, a lot of dislike is projected on, on some political leaders. And it's very difficult... <laughs> ah, I'm not going to name names. <laughs> it's very difficult once you've, you've locked a person into that uh, perception to see anything about them that could be lovable, that could be um, endearing. You can't, you can't imagine how any sane person could possibly like that person. <laughs> we've, but in doing so, we've somehow denied the complexity of that person's existence. We've cut off a possibility of having a real dialogue, an understanding with such a person. We've somehow uh, demonized them. We've stripped them out of the complex conditions of their life and we have isolated them within this idea of the person being stupid or evil or whatever and thereby we've cut them off. And... um, I find it disturbing when political life gets reduced to this kind of demonization. Um, Even though I may not agree with the person's policies or whatever, I try not to buy into a hate-filled perception in which that person is now somehow uh, cut off from any meaningful 
sensitivity or feeling or understanding. That is the danger, I think. That is the danger that we all, I think, have within us is to, um, is to, is to create a radical, unbridgeable gulf between oneself and the other person or other people. So, so hate, hatred, and we can use the same for any emotion that is constrictive in that way, also transfigures our sense of the other, our sense of the world beyond our minds. And yet we know that when our, our mind changes, when we gain some other understanding of a person, that suddenly, by changing our perception, we can open up our hearts. So, Mara, or Mara nature, um, is that whole complex of psychological and other behaviours we have that tends to, to kill. Literally, Mara means the killer. Once you've isolated someone, a hateful person, or even a desired person, you switch the other side, you know, the, the romantic love problem. You know, you have this person you fall in love with and there's nothing that is... In, it's unimaginable how that person could have a dark side. <laughs> we only discover that after we get married. <laughs> we realise that the person we fell in love with was to some extent an idealised image that we were seeking an embodiment for in the world. But the actual nature of any human relationship, particularly an intimate one in proximity, is learning to know the other person in their complexity and vice versa, which is never black and white. So, so Mara is that which shuts things down, which closes off possibilities, which enforces separations and distinctions, and thereby, I feel, reinforces our own sense of separateness and alienation and isolation. And so in Blake's words, for man has closed himself up till he sees all things through narrow chinks of his cavern. It's a powerful image. And I think it catches very well this, this movement within us to, from, towards openness and understanding and acceptance on the one hand and closure opinionatedness, fixed ideas and a kind of cold-heartedness on the other. Now, nonetheless, when we um, use this word Buddha nature, we don't often think of it quite in this way. Very often, Buddha nature is thought of as some kind of hidden potential or capacity, something deep within us somewhere, some spark of enlightenment, some spark of Buddhahood, that's, as it were, concealed or covered or occluded by our delusions, by our confusions, by our attachments and so on. It's, a, it's something that's in us as a seed, sort of waiting to burst out. Now, that metaphor is not um, entirely uh, inappropriate, but I think it's problematic because it suggests that Buddha nature is some kind of thing. The classic images we find in Buddhist texts to describe this likewise reinforce that idea. There's um, one image often used, which talks of Buddha nature as being like the seam of gold in the ore of rock. So you have a piece of rock and in it there will be traces or seams of gold. So the Buddha nature is like the seams of gold within our psychophysical organism. Another metaphor somewhat similar is that the Buddha nature is like a, um, a golden Buddha image that has been wrapped in soiled cloth. 
Another image is that of the Buddha nature as being like honey that is enclosed in the wax of the beehive. Now all of these images, for whatever value they have, also carry a problem. And that is that we think of the Buddha nature as one thing and the the, the stuff of our life as another thing, like the gold and the ore, like the honey and the wax. We've already split the Buddha nature apart from the uh, stuff, the fabric of our mind and our bodies. We think of it as something different. And in, in a way what has happened, and uh, I think this is uh, fairly clear, is the Buddha nature has come to be a kind of substitute soul which Buddhists feel that replaces um, the notion of self. Okay, we don't have a self in Buddhism, but thank God we have Buddha nature. <laughs> and we th- I think a lot of people think this way, and it's, it's certainly attractive. And it does perhaps serve as, you know, as an empowering idea. But I think the very way of thinking about it, that, that very way of thinking about it, tends, if anything, to actually reinforce um, the very problem that the Buddha was seeking to resolve. Namely, this, this sense of setting out one aspect of our being as somehow cut off, somehow privileged over all others. In religions in which there is um, an acceptance of a supernatural reality such as God, then we can also posit a supernatural reality such as a soul or a a sort of a permanent self. And this, I think, is the great um, yearning and longing for human beings to feel that no matter how um, uh, transient their physical and emotional and mental life might be, that there is something that is essential to ourselves that is not tied, that is not locked in to those natural processes. But when we die, that that magic factor X, whatever we call it, will have an ability to survive the breakdown of the natural, uh, physical, mental organism. And Buddhism too is caught in this notion of reincarnation. And, well, again, there's a huge discussion around this, but it does seem that there's still an attempt to hold on to something within us that does not die. Some kind of special privileged consciousness, Buddhists would usually call it, that doesn't p- appear to be intrinsic to uh, the natural evolutionary existence of our body. And so Buddha nature quite easily begins to assume that kind of role. This is the bit of us that is somehow already free. The problem lies very much in the idea of there being a bit of us. Some, usually you'll hear this words like subtle. And the Tibetans even have a term, very subtle. (laughs) Subtle is usually a fudge, I feel, for making a claim about something that we don't really understand. If you don't, we can't see it, we can't hear it. Well, in that case, it's subtle. (laughs) Again, I think a dodgy language. We also have a problem um, in the very notion of... Uh, of nature, and by this I mean Buddha nature. This has become, in English, the standard term to refer to this capacity, this potential, Buddha nature. Now, nature here for, in ancient Indian and in classic Buddhist language, doesn't mean nature in the sense I've been saying the natural world or the nature outside ourselves. That is is a concept you simply don't find either in Buddhism or in a lot of traditional cultures. There is no separate concept of nature in that sense. 
You have to be sufficiently alienated from nature to be able to conceptualize it in that manner. That's another story. It's a very interesting story. Um, but Tibetans, for example, can't say nature, you know, mother nature, the natural world. Um, I'll tell you a story. This is going off on the track a bit. The, um, I once was an interpreter for a Tibetan Lama in Hamburg, in Germany. And um, the centre used to be initially in a suburban part of town. And then we moved into a larger building which was on the edge of the city, right by a great big forest. And it was summer. Uh, and we'd, we finished our move. And one of the things I really wanted to share with the Geshe, the Tibetan teacher, uh, was uh, this wonderful forest. And so I said, come on Geshe, get on your robes, we're going to go for a walk. And so we walked through this really wonderful German forest. It is thick, you know, these huge big oaks and, and so forth and so on and beautiful little trails and undergrowth and deer wandering around. It was wonder, wonder, absolutely wonderful. And we, got, we walked for about an hour then we came out to the far side of the forest back onto the road and the Lama turned to me and, and he said, we made it. <laughs> and, he, and he was absolutely baffled as to what possible enjoyment I could gain from something like that this, a forest for him was a, was, was, a, was a, a dangerous scary place it had, it had not it was a place where there was not only you know, the danger of animals and so forth and so on, but spirits, goblins, ghosts. It was a spooky, scary, dark kind of place where you don't go for recreation at all. And that was one of those moments that really showed me how um, you know, what we have come to perceive as the beauty of the natural world is actually a, very, a fairly recent thing. Um, even, um, you know, 200 years ago, 300 years ago, the, the Alps in Switzerland were not thought of as beautiful. They were thought of as actually kind of awful, terrible things. Um, in the history of Western painting, um, you don't actually get rep uh, uh, paintings of landscapes until Claude Lorraine in the 17th century. That nature could be perceived as beautiful in its own right. It's a very recent thing. And it was actually in the Romantic movement in the early 19th century that we get the first celebrations of the beauty of nature. But that, of course, is a reflex of um, human beings having come to have control and dominion over the natural world to the point they can feel sufficiently safe from it that they can then devise ways to enjoy it. Anyway, when, when we say Buddha nature, we don't mean nature in that sense at all. We mean nature in the more philosophical sense of a kind of um, essential identity. So Buddha nature is the essential awakening nature or identity that each being possesses. But we have a problem here because the word nature is one that uh, Buddhist philosophy, Buddhist thinkers have tended to be highly suspicious of. It's another variant of the notion of self. The nature of something, the essence of something, is also often spoken of as the self of something, uh, the soul of something. So Buddhist philosophy recognizes that it's the attachment and the, to and the assumption of intrinsic natures in things that keeps us stuck and trapped at root. Nagarjuna's philosophy of emptiness is sometimes called Niswabhavada, which means a view of no nature or no essence. And emptiness is thought of as essencelessness. There's no need to posit some kind of essential nature or identity that as it were, grounds and identifies something as being what it really is. Now, I know this is a bit philosophical, but Buddha nature, I think, unfortunately, carries a lot of those resonances. Now, what is curious is that although we use in English this word Buddha nature, there is no 
Sanskrit equivalent. There's certainly no Pali equivalent, but there's no Sanskrit or Indian equivalent either. Um, the, 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 all of, although the Sanskrit texts use a term that we translate as Buddha nature, never in any of those terms do they use the word nature or essence. So why is it translated as Buddha nature? This is a quirk of, this is a kind of quirk of the history of translation. When Mahayana Buddhist texts were first introduced into English um, in the 20th century, particularly by writers such as uh, Suzuki, D.T. Suzuki, um, they drew from Chinese sources um, this language of Buddha nature, particularly in Zen. It's quite widespread, but in all Mahayana thought, really. And the Chinese use this word for Buddha nature, Fu Xing. Now, Fu means Buddha, and Xing is the Chinese word for nature or essence. So, we translate Fu Xing as, quite correctly, Buddha nature. But Fu Xing is a translation of a Sanskrit term, Tathagata Garbha, or sometimes Buddha Gotra. Now, Garbha, which is Tathagata Garbha, is the most widely used expression in Sanskrit for Buddha nature. But Garbha doesn't mean nature. Garbha means womb. Tathagata means Buddha, and Garbha means womb. Now, womb, as I'm sure we'll all agree, has uh, a metaphorical uh, power and a metaphorical association that's very little to do with the concept of essence or nature. Why the Chinese translated it as nature, I don't know. Maybe they were a bit prudish. Who's to say? The Tibetans, likewise, when they translated to Tagatagarba, they've got a perfectly good word for womb in Tibetan, but they didn't use it. They called it Dishinshikpi Nyingbo. Nyingbo means, again, heart. Or Nyingbo means like sort of heart essence. The word Garba means womb. Now, womb is... Um, uh, to, to think of, of, of my Buddha nature as my Buddha womb brings up a whole range of, I think, very earthly and sensuous associations and also very much a sense of creative possibility. A womb, after all, is an empty space. But it's not just an empty space like the empty space in this room. It's an empty space that has the capacity to be impregnated and to give birth to something that grows within it. It's a fertile space. It's a warm space. It's a fleshly space. And again, I think, if you think of the sort of people who would have come up with these ideas, in other words, celibate Buddhist monks, <laughs> it, it's a very provocative idea. Uh, it, it's not, it, it, it seems to, in a way, embrace something that would not be part of their daily experience. It, it's very much tied to the earth, it's tied to women, it's tied to childbirth, it's tied to families. Now, the other word that is used in Sanskrit is, uh, is gotra, Buddha gotra. Now, gotra, again, doesn't mean nature. It means lineage. It means family. Again, a totally different idea. But very, you can see that it's not light years away from womb. It's also a sense that your Buddha nature is a way, a kind of sense of how you belong to a family um, that has a particular capacity to evolve in a singular way. There's also in the notion of family or Buddha family, Buddha lineage, a sense of a kind of typology because there are said to be different Buddha families. You get this in Vajrayana still. But Buddha family, again, is an earthly, non-metaphysical image 
whereas nature and essence are highly abstract ideas. So a Buddha womb um, suggests, as I said already at the very beginning, a capacity for um, expansion, a capacity for evolution, for growth, and for birth. It's a dynamic concept. It's a concept which suggests the most um, primary process of the, um, the insemination and the gestation and the emergence of life rather than that dead static notion, essence. So one's Buddha nature is a way, and again, at this point, one will almost want to drop the word nature, but one's Buddha nature, one's Buddha womb, one's Buddha capacity, is simply a way of talking about how this human organism, uh, it's it, this complex set of aggregates, as the Buddhists are so fond of speaking, our physical existence, our emotional existence, our perceptions, our impulses, our choices, our awareness, our consciousness, that this kind of organism is one that can be impregnated, metaphorically, with a vision, with an idea, what might be enlightenment or awakening, that can then gestate and be nourished and brought to fruition in the context of this body-mind process. That's Buddha nature. Mara nature, if we think in those terms, is uh, that a, a kind of infertility, a kind of barrenness, a, a, a commitment to uh, a life in which we're not willing to be impregnated by ideas or visions other than our own fixed opinions, in which we just are committed to remaining the same of fighting a, an ongoing battle against change, against conflict, against challenge, and just shutting ourselves down, as Blake would have said. Again, we're talking imagistically. So in that sense, um, we go beyond the idea of thinking of a potential as some kind of esoteric part of ourselves that's able to wake up. And this, I think, also we can illustrate uh, with a simple analogy. All of us would agree that a knife has the capacity or the potential to cut bread, let's say. Now, we don't, though, think of the knife's bread-cutting potential as it's cutting nature. We, we might actually say it's cutting nature. But do we think of that cutting nature as some esoteric property that knives have? Or do we think of that cutting nature as simply a way of describing the structure of the knife itself? If the knife doesn't cut properly, we don't say prayers to its cutting nature to, uh, to work better. We sharpen it. A knife's potential to cut um, lies solely and uniquely in the structure of the object itself. In other words, having a, a, the kind of steel that can be uh, sharpened and then can preserve a blade. That's what enables the knife to cut. Nothing else. In other words, its potential is just a way of talking about the about its own structure, of how it is formed, um, the metals it's made of and so on. And in a similar way, I think we should think of Buddha nature as being like the human organism's capacity to awaken. The knife's capacity to cut is metaphorically the human being's capacity to wake up. And that capacity is found nowhere but in the actual structure of the human organism itself. We don't have to posit anything else. That's simply what, at our current point in evolution, human beings have a capacity to do. And that's because of the structure of our bodies 
our nervous systems, our brains, our senses, our culturing, our culture, our language, our thoughts, our feelings, our mental skills, properties, our ability to be focused, concentrated, all of those things operating in concert in a given organism are what enables us to wake up. That is simply the process that we have potentially within us to realise. We don't need anything else. But at the same time, that very same organism has the capacity not to wake up. It has the capacity to become attached. It has the capacity to shut down. It has the ability to close off to other people. It has the ability to make itself miserable. It has the ability to be terribly neurotic. And again, such an ability or capacity is not different in any sense from simply the way that organism is structured. So Buddha nature and Mara nature are just ways of looking at two primary capacities that human beings have. And that's all. And if we were to use an analogy, I wouldn't use that of the gold in the rock or anything like that, but perhaps an analogy somewhat like a valve. A valve is a you know, rubber and a metal object that has the capacity to be open or closed. But that capacity, uh, those capacities are both intrinsic in the structure of the valve itself. It depends how the valve is, is, is utilised or mod- modulated or put into relation to another um, object that enables it to be open or closed. So Buddha nature, Mara nature, are not different from each other. They are simply ways of describing uh, different modalities that the same organism can actualize or realize in life. So to put this in more concrete terms. When we sit in meditation, we sat in meditation for half an hour before this talk, we'll sit in meditation again. We can see sometimes this, these two contending capacities or modalities presenting themselves to us in a given moment. We're sitting here watching the breath. The mind has become still relatively quiet. A very seductive thought pops up in the mind. This happens sometimes. <laughs> now we have, a, we, have a, we have a freedom at that point. We can either um, say, okay, seductive thought has arisen and we can not buy into it, we cannot identify with it, and if we leave it alone, the chances are it will just go away. In other words, we can have an open relationship to it. Uh, we can uh, be present with it, we can fully see what's going on there, um, we can notice even how we're drawn towards it. We can see how the, the, the body and the mind almost kind of cohere and coalesce around it. Again, a shutting down. But we can also, in the better moments, we can retain a kind of disinterested awareness of these processes that are coming up within us. We can perhaps even use that challenge as one to, to affirm that open perspective such that it is able to become something else or fade away. As soon as we buy into it, and very often we don't consciously buy into it, we find some moments down the road that we have bought into it. You know what it's like, you're sitting there in meditation, everything's hunky-dory, breath is really good, no pain in the back, it's great, peaceful. The next thing you know, the bell's gone and you've been somewhere in some fantasy or other. You can't sometimes even remember what it was that was so interesting. But you can see how in that practice of meditation there, we can see how the organism can remain open, or let's say the mind in this case can be open, can understand, can accept, can not lose its 
spaciousness and its focus, or we can see how it can be taken over. We might even use the word possessed. It feels like possession sometimes. We feel that we're under some kind of attack. We feel invaded by unwelcome thoughts. And and this is very much a way of talking about Mara. Mara is, um, in some of the classic uh, suttas, described as, um, as having an army that surrounds us, that is attacking us. Um, Shantideva, in a later Mahayana text, talks of how um, the, 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 the house of the mind is guarded by the watchmen of mindfulness at the gateways of the senses, keeping an eye out for the, what, what, what he calls the bands of thieves, uh, the, you know, these negative thoughts and attachments and fears and so on that are circling around us, waiting for an opportunity to break in to the house of the mind. And as soon as mindfulness departs, says Shantideva, then these thieves will break in. Again, this is a very metaphorical way of speaking. But it somehow describes, I think quite well, um, how meditation often feels to be. Uh, We don't choose to feel greedy or lustful or hateful or um, whatever. We find ourselves suddenly taken over by such thoughts. And once they've gotten hold, it's very difficult to let go of them. The Buddha speaks of Mara as laying out traps and snares or throwing um, fish hooks our way to snag us That's very often what it feels like in meditation, that we've been kind of hooked by something and the whole body, mind, kind of gets caught up in that. And that peacefulness, that stillness, that attentiveness suddenly evaporates. It's gone. You find this idea in in psychology too. Uh, Jung, for example, spoke of uh, neuroses. He defined neuroses as autonomous complexes in the psyche autonomous complexes. They appear to have a life of their own. They appear to invade and attack us. We talk of anxiety attacks, panic attacks, which again suggests how we feel these things break into the tranquility or the relative tranquility of our minds. Mara is like that. Mara is... uh, uh, is in a sense that which seems to attack us. Um, I suspect that its origins lie in biological habits perhaps, in psychological problems we might, might have. But whatever the source of them, the, when they occur, it's as though we shut down. It's as though we then get trapped and caught in a particular frame of mind, like hatred, I mentioned before, where the world then becomes fixed any sense of fluidity, any sense of openness, any sense of somehow being otherwise in our experience is for the moment lost. We can see the same thing likewise um, in, in social and moral situations where someone may come to us in distress, for example, and at one moment we find within us this resource to respond Uh, compassionately to empathise deeply with the other person's pain and to reach out to them and console them and say things and do things that actually surprise us We, we, we actually are rather shocked and astonished by how we've somehow risen to this occasion and dealt with this extraordinarily painful and conflicted situation and that I think is one's Buddha nature, if you wish, that capacity of this organism to be, to be open, to be transparent, to take risks, to move on, to not live from what we already know, from what we've already established a million times in our belief system. But then there are other moments, maybe even in the next day, when a similar situation occurs, a person comes to us in great grief, 
and we find that we don't have the capacity to really reach out to them. We find that we're just repeating Buddhist platitudes or uh, little gems of psychotherapeutic wisdom. And yet we kind of know that this is not really true. It's somehow an act, it's somehow uh, a role that we feel that we should play in this situation because we think of ourselves as being kind people or compassionate people. And we thereby feel obliged to act out that identity that we have. Now, on the surface, it may not look much different. But I feel that internally, in terms of how we actually experience those uh, two different occasions, there's a world of difference. One which we feel there's a kind of uh, a freedom and an authenticity. Another one in which we feel that we're actually trapped and unable to move beyond our fixed opinions and ideas and attachments, and which we feel somehow phony. Buddha nature is thought of as a womb. Buddha nature is also, in Dogen, um, thought of as a question. There's a passage in the Shobogenzo, which is the great work that Dogen wrote in the 13th century in Japan, called a busho, which means the Buddha nature section. And at one passage in, in, in that text, Dogen says, um, what is Buddha nature? And he replies, Buddha nature is, what is this thing? How did it get here? Again, at first sight, that might sound a little odd, a typical sort of quirky Zen comment. But if we think about it, I think it reveals itself to shed further light on this issue. The, the, the question, what is this thing, how did it get here, refers back to as an 8th century koan that took place in China between Hui Neng, the 6th patriarch, and his student Hui Zhang, a young monk who'd come from the north and who eventually became his successor. Um, and when Hui, Neng, when, uh, Hui Zhang came down to see Hui Neng, Hui Neng said, where have you come from? And he said, oh, I've come from Mount Song. And then Hui Neng said, but what is this thing? How did it get here? At which Hui Zhang was speechless. And that was the kind of wordless questioning and shock, perhaps, the young man found himself in that then became the trigger for his subsequent awakening and enlightenment. Now, Dogen identifies Buddha nature with that capacity we have to experience our life as a question rather than as a set of more or less evident facts. So, Buddha nature, or Buddha womb, um, is that which is a which is, as it were, triggered, that capacity to open, perhaps is triggered by that moment or those moments in our life when we become surprised or astonished or perplexed by the very fact that we're here at all. And we find ourselves asking such questions as, well, who am I really? What is this life about? What's it, where's it all going? How did I get here? Not in a way in which we're expecting some kind of quasi-scientific answer that will give us facts to resolve that question, but in a way in which we ask that question from a deep sense of um, bewilderment in the sh about the sheer fact of being here now. And that is Buddha nature. That is the question that then propels us along a path or onto a quest, a spiritual quest or a philosophical or psychological one that seeks to respond to the question that life most deeply poses to us. So I'll wind up here. I hope that um, 
Whereas, again, just one more thing. Whereas Mara nature, in this case, would be our commitment to an identity that is fixed and static. You know, I'm this person, or I've done this, and I've done that, and I'm like this, and I'm like that, and that's not negotiable. That's who I am. End of story. That's Mara nature. The Buddha nature is, what the hell is this thing here? What's going on? And of course, there's a world of difference between the two. And, but on the other hand, we see ourselves oscillate between these things. Uh, it's not as though we're always in one or always in the other. We oscillate. And, we str- and this is our struggle very often. Uh, the conflict that we have to work through. But let me stop here. I've spoken for nearly an hour. That's longer than I'd wanted to. And I suggest that we have a break now and we can use this time for walking meditation. I'd very much ask of you to keep silent uh, during this period. Um, to use the time either to walk outside or we can walk in the room here, walk slowly, walk mindfully or we might like to just take a little stroll and then sit down somewhere quietly, come back to our breath, our bodies, reflect on what has been of interest to you in what I've said Um, and then we'll return here at uh, 20 to 3 and I'll open this up for uh, a discussion Uh, before we have the next period of meditation. Thank you.